Rise and shine, Mr. Freeman. Be careful of what you do. Big Brother is watching you. You say that you got me all in the mother. Rather than offer you the illusion of free choice, I will take the liberty of choosing for you. Hi, everyone. This is the Hurricane Labs InfoSec podcast, episode 0.04, the security issues don't just appear out of thin air, dot, 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 edition. So I'm Kelsey Clark, your marketing person. I'm Tom Kupchak, uh, operations and support team lead. I'm Corey Ham, penetration tester. I'm Nico Willard. I'm the operations intern. And Nico's awesome, and we're glad to have him here. He made us banana bread this morning. That's so the only that reason we let him on the podcast <laughs> is because he made banana bread. Yes. And I'm already making noise, so watch out, everybody. So anyway, we're just going to jump into it. I have some announcements, but they can wait until the end because I'm not important. So we're basically going to be talking about how much the government, and I'm sorry to say this, sucks at information security. Um, does someone want to give us a little background on the Office of Personnel Management breach? There's a lot of background to be had because the breach has been going on, supposedly had been going on since like December 2014, so almost like five months. Um, basically, the Office of Personnel Management is the department of the government that manages people who work for the government. So that includes, you know, post office, all, basically any government worker. Um, the breach was an endpoint breach, meaning it's the client some client machine somewhere and they suspect that like like they said bet- between 4 and 18 million records were leaked or exfiltrated uh, that includes social security numbers names date of birth anything you'd want to steal someone's identity basically so was there just a csv file on someone's hard drive with a spreadsheet with 18 million records in it or something i would i don't know that sounds kind of efficient for the government i would assume that this spreadsheet was spread across like 20 different machines and they were all compromised that's like, alleged, though. Alleged 18 million. 4.2 yeah. confirmed. They don't so, want to scare that's the still a so lot of rows for a spreadsheet. Let's assume, <laughs> let's assume, if it, so it's alleged 4 million, let's assume it was actually 20 million. Basically. Um, I mean, is anyone surprised? It's a nice round number. So it's funny because if you look at the how they discovered the breach, obviously all this is unconfirmed, but supposedly a security vendor was giving them a demo and they installed some endpoint protection on one of their machines and they saw processes running that shouldn't have been running and that's when they figured out they got breached. That was how they figured it out, by looking at processes <laughs> that were running on a client, or, you know, on an endpoint. So was it a successful demo then for that? I'd say it wasn't a successful demo. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they were really glad to be the ones who figured it out. Yeah, if your product works right off the bat like that. Yeah, like antivirus, so good. I mean, who knows? I, the what's, the what's amount this, of ignorance. What's this China.exe that keeps on running on my system? <laughs> it was later analyzed and found to be malware. Wow, that's so surprising. China.exe. No, it's not surprising. But to me personally, what's the most ridiculous of everything? Like you expect this to happen. You expect these government agencies to not even know. Like they're probably still on XP. They don't know. Like, mm, but no, they, they just upgraded XP. The thing. The problem is like okay. They spent $13 billion on supposedly on cybersecurity last year. So where did all the money go? Because it wasn't into... Isn't like $13 billion nothing in terms of government? $13 billion? Th- that's like how, uh, like a handful of jets. How much is a Nessus subscription? <laughs> how much is endpoint protection from Symantec? How uh-huh. much is uh, Windows Task Manager? How much does that one cost? <laughs> 
Well, you do have to press three keys at once. That's true. So you got to buy a keyboard with a special government-enabled keyboard that has three keys. It's uh, it's Prism uh, certified, or no? What is it? What is the uh, RF interference certification? Tempest. It's Tempest oh, yeah. certified, <laughs> but it doesn't actually tell you when you have China.exe running. Thirteen billion dollars can't buy you security. Then I don't know what can. Well, and you were saying that the people, whoever it is. I don't know. Their IT department, whoever it is, you say they don't know. I don't I don't agree that they are just unaware. I think they have a pretty decent warning that, you know, hackers are interested in their systems, whether it's from auditors or whatever, but there's no one there's no policy in place that's forcing them to to do something about See, it. See, I don't first of all, you're right about it being like they knew about it before. I think there there was unconfirmed reports that they had audits in twenty thirteen and twenty fourteen that said they had, like, chronic security flaws and severe misconfigurations and that kind of stuff. But also, just the the idea that, like, there's no policy that says, like, make sure that China.exe isn't running or, like... I, I mean, I'm not... I do not work for the IT department at the OPM, so I cannot state for sure whether this is true, but I feel like somewhere there was a policy violation. To me, it seems pretty obvious that you'd have some kind of endpoint protection on your machines of some sort. I feel like that's got to be in a policy somewhere. You would hope. Well, well, just think about the government as or a whole. Or firewalls. There are so many different organizations. It's not like the government has, you know, the government IT policy that's just like Well, no, across. but there's a lot of IT. I mean, even PCI. But there, sh- there are just so many levels of... It's kind of like saying, you know, Hurricane Labs, we are, you know, a company, and we have different departments, and we have different organizations, but then we have customers that we manage things for. And then... All these different groups, they have different policies. The government's no different. Like the Department of Defense and the NSA is going to have different security policies Aren't than, let's like, just say, the TSA. Isn't there the Federal Information Processing Standards or whatever? The, um, from what I was reading, they also stated that they just kind of are following what lawmakers make in terms of policies. So, <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. That's, that's, that's so a good laugh. We're, we're looking at, when you talk about lawmakers making policies, you have people who grew up when typewriters were still a thing oh yeah i know those are the people who are making policies in terms of technology what's the internet well so you're saying yeah, really that's so you, yeah so you're saying they're following are you saying they're following the policy-based checkbox approach is that what you're saying mm-hmm. well so they're not that policy-based checkbox approach isn't inherently failure prone it's just when your policy is written by someone who doesn't even know what the internet is it's going to be failure prone right exactly it doesn't seem like they would, you know... But they had to be following some policy because they had audits. Well, yeah, if they implement a policy, I mean, that policy is going to stay there until something bad happens. It's almost like reactive security at that point. Well, then why did they implement the policy to have audits? Even oh. even having audits, that doesn't mean you're going to find everything. Too. No, but they knew they had problems. I feel like, okay, so the policy that required them to get audits, wouldn't it also require some level of remediation or something? Depends on the policy, I guess. Even PCI requires remediation, man. It also depends (laughs) on the audits that were going on. Like, what were they looking for? Well, all I know is that some unconfirmed reports have said that they found severe security vulnerabilities. So they clearly found problems. So when you guys are doing pen tests, for example, you find things that are severe vulnerabilities, right? Yes. From time to time, you also see things that you would think is a big issue that the customer doesn't seem to care about, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and a lot of times, those can be considered to be accepted risks, even against our recommendations. 
at times we we have never really had something that was exploitable or genuinely exploitable be accepted as a risk even in cases in cases where a customer wants to have something as an accepted risk or to say that like oh this isn't a big deal we will like argue with them essentially and and tell them why it's a big deal and normally they're pretty receptive to that kind of thing but i mean that doesn't obviously cover remediation. We have absolutely no control over that. Yeah. But my only argument is saying, okay, so first of all, they wouldn't just willy-nilly get an audit because they're the government and there's no way they would do something proactively without having to be required to do it. So I'm just saying it's it seems reasonable to me to assume that whatever policy required them to get an audit would likely be violated by not remediating any of those issues they found. I, but I don't might know. even say that... It, they had the audit and they could say that, hey, we're working on remediating that stuff. That could have possibly fulfilled the requirements. That's working, though, could have been like years down the road. Because that's true. Let's just say you had a finding in an audit report, hypothetically, like enable firewalls. And it's and like, oh, there's no firewalls yeah. in the government. Just hypothetically, <laughs> you know, let's just say that was an example. They couldn't really next week just put firewalls everywhere. They could be working towards it by just putting one firewall in somewhere and say, hey, we're working on it. Yeah. That's so that, that's one of the things you see with policies and procedures and audits and all that. It's kind of like gray area a little bit. Uh, it's such a good excuse. What are you excuse. actually doing? Yeah. Such a good excuse. We're working on it. That makes me think of, I mean, one of the main points, or at least from what I was reading, was that the stolen data was not encrypted. And so they were coming up with all this. Well, you know, we were working on strengthening our, our security. We were working on implementing, you know, the encryption. Didn't this D- happen with Sony too? Like with all of their customer records? Not encrypted. This has happened with a lot of people. But, yeah. Well, if they're encrypted, how are you going to be able to see who your customers Encryption are? only helps you <laughs> a certain amount, really. Well, but they're saying that encryption would not have made a difference. Probably not. At all. Because here's the thing. So they had client access to whatever database they're talking about. Like, encryption is going to save you if you have SQL injection that allows an attacker to read your SQL database. But if you're allowed to read it with the application, which has the ability to decrypt it, you might as well not have encryption. If you're reading it from a client perspective, you would presume that the machines that were infected would need to be able to read that data unencrypted. So in yeah, some way, they would have been really able... suck at dealing with yeah. the humans can't decrypt data. AES two fifty six or any other cryptographic, you know, hash. So it's basically like the reason you implement client, you know, all these security things that we always talk about is because that prevents you from having a client machine compromise that can read the unencrypted data anyway. Well, it's the same idea as like DRM for audio and video and all that. Anything like a movie or an audio clip, you have to be able to listen or watch. So you so you, you can, have an analog you hole where you can... It. Yeah, it might be a little difficult, but you have the key and the crypt data. So yeah, if you, someone has to see or hear something, there is a way that it can be intercepted. Yeah, so I mean, they had... Like in the case of Target, you can pretty much assume that Target's... There was encryption happening at Target, but they just scraped the credit cards. Even if they had end-to-end encryption, you know, it would have helped some, but even then they could still probably implement some kind of memory scraping tool or something to, to get the credit cards, whether they're encrypted or not. Well, because if you, they had access if you to encrypt the, on the reader for that, yeah, that's what that would be do. the mm-hmm. best way to do it. Then you'd have to compromise the reader yeah. as opposed to the POS system. Or reverse system. the protocol or reverse the encryption. But, so yeah. by compromising the endpoint, they kind of had full access to that unencrypted database i mean if it was encrypted then i mean coming from another yeah uh, attack vector you couldn't see the database contents without having that like you said the policy the client side access mm-hmm. yeah so i mean basically i think a lot of this discussion of the breach is essentially a big the reason it's blown up so much i mean it's not really that surprising if you look at the details and it's not really that shocking but the reason it's big is because it points to a lot of really 
more severe, deeply rooted security problems at the government in general, not just at the OPM. So I think that's why it's getting so much press is because people are realizing like, wait, 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 they didn't have encryption. The client machine was compromised. They were able to exfiltrate 4 million records. All this stuff isn't just surface level like, oh, well, if they had had encryption, they would have been fine. Like, you know, it's it's a deep rooted security it's a almost an organizational security flaw. There had to have been multiple different types of failures in order for something like this Absolutely. to happen. I mean, to exfiltrate data, you need a firewall or you need, you know, some way out. You need, they, they supposedly got in through social engineering and had, ac- they said, oh, the attackers had access to the password. Okay. I'd, I'd be, and everyone says social engineering. It, 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 it's an easy out. I would just consider that that's pretty much guaranteed to always work. You're never going to not fail at social engineering, pretty much. Hey, Tom, you what's your password? Yes. <laughs> so social engineering is great unless the person can't read the database. Yes. You know? and that, that's, that's, that's what I'm getting at, though. You pretty much have to assume that social engineering is going to be successful. That's true. Yeah, you have to form your security policy based on that, that your users are going to fail. Yeah, and, and, and I don't want to ever say the way that users are the problem because we always say, oh, those users fall, fell to social engineering. It's going to happen. You can help, but it's still, yeah. It's a failure of the systems that are there to prevent something bad happening to a user because inevitably something is going to fail on the user side. And it's not necessarily a fault of the user either. Yeah. I mean, social engineering is you're essentially pitting someone who has an inherent advantage against someone who has an inherent disadvantage. And that's the idea of it. And so in that matchup, you can train the, the person with a disadvantage to try to get away f- to succeed and, and to, to stand up to the person. But it's not as good as just like, there's no challenge when you, if you try to get out on a firewall port that's blocked, there's no like challenge, no matter how experienced you are as an attacker or how much information you have, it's not going to help. So with social engineering, it's, you're right. You should assume it's going to work. You should assume that your users will be social engineered successfully. Yeah. And even when you're looking at government system, this is probably a little bit beyond what we usually are thinking of in terms of security, because the incentive and the target is so much more significant than a lot of other organizations because of the information that's there. Definitely. Um, because there was also top secret documents or top secret. I, I don't know exactly what the form is, but I, I, I think it's the application for top secret, which involves like an extensive process of interviewing so, Anyone you ever talked to? So on it the has street. every president's home phone number in it, basically. It's background check data, um, and kind of that that process was revealed over a data set that's known to be at least 4.2 million documents large. So I'm glad I don't work for the government right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just think it's unfortunate that even when they try to go scrambling around and fixing it, they do the worst thing that they could do, which is well, I don't know if it's the worst thing, but they send out breach notifications to those affected and include clickable links to some private website to sign up for credit monitoring and protection. I mean, not exactly the best. Didn't they just have that problem? Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's just... Don't get me started on the whole credit monitoring and stuff. I, <laughs> right. I, what is there, like, someone who's watching a database of a, or, like, a big screen of everything that's happening? Oh, that identity looks bad. We'll call them and tell them. Well, I mean... They probably monitor for like... It's like everyone in the world has like a lifetime of free credit monitoring by now as a result of like (laughs) every breach that's happened. I mean... (laughs) It's a good time to be a credit monitoring service, isn't it? We should do that. Kelsey, get on that. Start marketing it. I am going to research it now. So, yeah, I mean, that's a terrible way to respond. But I mean, hey, better than I expected from the government. I expected them to just like cover it up and be like... Uh, tap all their phones, and if anyone talks about it, just uh, 
delete it. Mm. So basically, someone needs to <laughs> tell them about the idea of least privileges. Well, L- le- least le- permissions. Let, let, I guess we could step through like ways that this could have been improved at least. I am making assumptions, of course, but like, so assuming that and, social engineering is going to be successful. The first and most obvious thing, endpoint protection. Not necessarily like it's infallible, but in general, if a new process starts running with administrative control and it's not a verified process on a government machine that has access to whatever, then it's probably bad. So in general, just across all these government workstations, they're they shouldn't be running with any sort of administrative rights. That, but they also should be with either host-based IDS, some kind of endpoint protect, either whether it's antivirus, whether it's, you know, host-based IDS, whether it's logging even would help. Um, Or like, you know, you could even lock it down to the point where it's, you know, you have a whitelist of applications that are allowed to run and that's it. It's government work. In the case of government application whitelisting, that that makes a lot more sense. Absolutely. The person who's running, like, they're basically probably dumping out a database and, like, printing it off or something. <laughs> I mean, they're not, like, they're not doing, like, abstract work where they have to, like, research, you know, tough problems. They I need to research this guy's social security number and add it with the other guy's social security <laughs> number. Yeah, no. And then we can do math with it. So networking, because they exfiltrated 4 million records. That's firewall, IDS. So I, I would be willing to say that, you know, once... The uh, machine was socially engineered in some way. Some software was installed, so there was nothing to alert on a change to a machine or anything to prevent that from happening. Then there had to be some form of outbound connection. That oh, happened. well, there had to be an outbound connection by the to install to make the change on the machine. So even assuming that just regular web browsing is allowed, maybe if there was proxies in place, that could have made a difference. We don't know if there's you know proxies in play here. Yeah, because that would, would be an helped. extra step. Because they prob if they use social engineering, they probably used web stuff. Probably. I mean, who knows? But either way, it should be proxied because that would help you with the raw HTTP connection somewhere that it shouldn't be going. Yeah, like e- e- you'd probably be able to launch a web page and even in, like download an executable or something to a machine because that'd be going through the browser, which understands how the proxy works. Yeah, yeah. But the resulting executable would have to be aware of yeah. there being a proxy in the system. So it's another step you have to be aware of. Not outside the realm of possibilities, just given the scope of the number of people who work in the government, and you could probably get that information if you wanted it. True, and also given the scope of the breach being so massive, you can assume that they essentially were able to run rampant. I mean, yeah. you don't... If they have good IDS, good firewall, a proxy, and host-based protection, you're not going to get 4 million records out. It's just not going to happen because that's those are packets. Why is this machine sending <laughs> – why is this one client machine sending 200, you know, megabytes of traffic a day to China? And hmm. I would yeah. – I'd be willing to say, and I don't know for sure at this, but you'd think that they wouldn't just be sending it directly to a Chinese IP address. Uh, probably Even if they, not. That's, that's you true. You think you'd but be hopping through like a, you know, an infected machine at a university or something like that so it looks like America traffic. So even so, why are they sending so much traffic out to some unknown host? Why are they uploading? They blame, should be uploading. Blame the university student, yeah. Well, that that is really a primary source for is a lot. Is it you? Yeah. No, it's not me. Well, you think about it universities they have public ips and you have a lot of people who probably shouldn't have public ips that are directly connected to the internet Mm -hmm. and university networks generally have pretty open firewall policies 
Mine so, didn't. I wish it did. Yeah, well, so, I wanted it on my BitTorrent server on a uh, hundred, you know, hundred meg, hundred gig, whatever it was, <laughs> super fiber. But it's it's a good assumption to say that a university firewall policy is going to be significantly more open than most. If nothing else, you could you could have remote access. You have fast internet access. Yeah. Really and, fast. Yeah, really fast internet access. A bunch a lot of, of Macs a, sitting there on someone's desk not being paid attention to. And a lot of users who just aren't all that, you know, Absolutely. security conscious. No, yeah, for sure. And it's uh, it's really up to the colleges. I don't know what if there's some kind of a policy that requires them to give them public IPs for copyright purposes or whatever <laughs> it is, but it's, you know... Well, I mean, it depends on the university. You can you can request public IPs, or you can be netted behind their network. So I think my, I don't know. At least my college specifically requires a public IP. There's no net. Hmm. Everything was piped directly because I get, I don't know why they gave the excuse of oh we get DCMA or whatever or digital DMCA takedowns all the time. And we can't just otherwise we'd have no way to track. Like I don't know. Not every college works that way, though. Yeah. No, I I mean. I assume there's a lot of variants. There's also grandma, you know. I mean, she has a US IP. I mean, yeah. and she's probably no, vulnerable. No password on the wireless And network. her router, just go straight for the router. Don't even bother going. But, like, if, if you're China and you want to get information out of the government and make it look like it's going to the US, it's not hard. Mm-hmm. That's true. Also, I did, I, I do know that, well, at least according to the sources we, you know, read, that they said there was contractors based in China, so... Traffic to China isn't on a isn't on a large scale inherently alarming or red flag. You know there there are they specifically stated that there was at least one contractor in China that had root access to the same database. So maybe it wouldn't be too far. You know even their firewall geolocation or whatever wouldn't help. Yeah, I'm I'm just saying like even if you had a policy it was like everything in the U.S. can't talk to China. Yeah, it's easy to help. get around yeah. because you just need a you can come from any IP affect a machine somewhere else. Yeah, I mean if you want we can pen test you from China. You can do it. Oh, not this again. (laughs) I mean, it's like um, people in Australia want to get access to, like, Netflix or something, you know? Just move your connection. It'll be slow, but go right ahead. Yeah. So just trying to to step through possible defenses and how they would help in this scenario, too. The big thing is IDS and host base IDS. And it's funny because, like, I saw that they linked, like, the U.S. CERT Einstein system was... uh, maybe could have helped detect it. Like, okay, well, why would like, it didn't do it? It didn't do anything. <laughs> it was, you know, some vendor. And I'm glad that at least they have, like, know what a security vendor is. That's good. Step in the right direction. Um, now they're best friends, right? Because they were there during the, they were the ones who revealed the breach and they helped them with incident response, so. What about, like, site whitelisting for uh, known known sites that are only under trusted CAs or something like that? Because, you know, users are going to click on links that are sent to them in emails or... Well, I could still social engineer. You just call your direct line and say, hey, I'm with IT. Can I have your password? I need to do some updates. Your whitelist is now, you know... I wish it wasn't that easy. You're also (laughs) social engineering the IT department then. Yeah. If, for example, you had something that was like a web filtering solution and it's like you can only go to government-related categorized sites, it's not that hard to make another page categorized as government and then bypass that. Well, he's saying a whitelist. I guess if it was whitelisted, like you can only go to things that are appropriate OPM. for your work. OPM.gov, that's it. Then you're, yeah, you're kind of well, screwed. Yeah, in that case. But it, you can still call and get their password and then just tell them to, to open up RDP or whatever. Well, that that's a lot more difficult. I, I would yeah. think there's at least some degree of change control for that. So, 
it's not like you're just going to have some random guy call up, hey, I need RDP open and, you know, no, well, I external mean, firewall. You could have them making out, there, what is it, like remote assistance invitations or whatever you can send out? We've detected a problem well, on it, your computer. If, it me depends on, you know, it. what's allowed through your firewall. Yeah, yeah. If, if you had, but you, can if you only allowed access to OPM.gov, that wouldn't work. Yeah, well, not if it's, what if you're only using the whitelist for HTTP? That's another case. If you just allow all HTTPS traffic out? Yeah. Sure, exactly. that's a problem. You also look at the perspective of, let's say, they were a little bit more relaxed. They, they wanted to go to other, you know, government sites and, you know, also other sites. But not every government in the world is going to have the most secure website ever. So let's that's just say true. they just, just allowed... <laughs> yeah, let's just say they allowed traffic to anything.gov. Then you just no longer have to attack... Yeah, you don't have to attack... Payload. You yeah. don't have to attack the whitehouse.gov site or any of those other sites. You could attack, you know random city or, gov or get their credentials and log into the opm vpn that's another option <laughs> and then you don't have to even try yeah get their credentials log into the you know whatever web interface they're using to load up the csv and then just get right click copy but then again it relies on that vpn user having the access they need or pivoting through the network to get that access yeah. the point is they away they underestimated the amount of damage you could do with someone's credentials essentially yeah once you, once you have access to something you pretty much can find a way yeah privileges are important time. privileges are important and that would have helped them a lot so really when when you guys are doing a penetration test of some sort you're trying to obviously get access to something yeah do you generally find that you just pretty much get some users account access first for that i mean it, it varies. If it's something like SQL injection, you're going to get a lot of accounts, and you can go through them. And I mean, you're going to get the ones at the top first. You're going to get admin or you know Allen or A Smith or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, you you can generally once you get one user, then you go from there. It just makes our job easier if it's an administrator, essentially. But even if it's just a normal user, you're going to you're going to benefit from having a yeah account, absolutely. and yeah. then you can use that to work through the network and. The account is, is the access. first step to getting in. You, I mean, it's very unlikely that you get in as an external without credentials. I mean, it's possible using some kind of you know exploitation and pivoting, but generally when we do compromise a box, one of the first things we do is try to get passwords so that we can use those accounts in other ways. If those accounts are stupid and they're not even domain accounts, or if they're you know they're not domain administrators, or they can only they have limited privileges, then that makes our job harder. It's a I mean it's basically random what as what to what you get. Yeah. But any user is better than no user, that's for sure. Because even the lowest privileged user can be used to gain network access usually through VPN. Yeah. So how do we recommend that you defend this sort of thing? Well, you pretty much. You, you have to make the assumption that if you want to get into somewhere, you're going to get a user account somehow. Well, it varies. I mean, there are, there are like I said, there are ways to get in without a user account. Exploitation is one of them. And how do you get the user account? That's the other question. The other thing you can do is like, for example, so it's SQL injection you have on your web app. But luckily, your web app users aren't your domain users. You have separation. So you have a web app user has a different password and a different like he doesn't just a domain user with the domain user name and password. He's just specific to that web app. Uh, that you know that helps because then even if we get dumped the whole database with SQL, I mean maybe we can. There's a possibility we can use you know XP command shell to actually escalate that SQL server to whatever privileges it's running as. But if you're talking about just dumping user accounts, sometimes we get web app accounts that we can't use anywhere else. 
because mm-hmm. they're just specific to one web app. And if they're two-factor accounts, I suspect they're significantly less useful. Too. Oh, uh, they're useless. Because you don't have the other one. Yeah, you don't have the second factor. Well, what I was reading is that OPM, just after this attack, has now, on a lot of their systems, required two-factor authentication, which, I mean... Oh, good. Better late than never, but I'm still curious as to why they chose this one particular endpoint. What was so special about this user's computer? Was well, it they called him and got their password first. That's what made it special. But why'd they pick that person, though? Was it... They, they just probably... Had, I mean, it could have been phishing, like you said, where they just sent out a dragnet, like... Hey, everyone, click this link, and then one person responded, and that was the person they went for. Or was this like spear phishing? Did this person have some elevated level of permission, or were they just a contractor through? I would assume uh, it's just everyone has access to everything because that's the easiest way to do it. But I mean, I who knows? I, but spear phishing is probably less likely. It's it was probably either just general attacking, or they just started war dialing people and saying, you know, hey, can I have your password? No, okay, I'll try the next guy. Hey, can I have your password? And then eventually they got one and. That's all you need. There were, I think there were maybe multiple machines. I think they did, after the initial compromise, they, they moved to separate machines, I believe, which makes sense because you'd assume they got domain, domain credentials. So what would limit that, the pivoting to different, I mean, does that mean they didn't have segmented? <laughs> yeah, I mean, segmented networks help a little bit, but still, you can still pivot to all the machines in your segment. What is probably more useful in this case is essentially disallowing remote login. I mean, who knows exactly how it went, but I would assume it was something like, hey, can I have your username and password? That turned out to be a domain account, and that domain account could log into more than one machine, and that's how they pivoted. But in general, yeah, I mean, you can have... You could have local IDS or, you know, LAN IDS essentially that detects if one of your clients is exploiting another client. That's obviously detectable. And then again, if the user account that they got through a phishing sort of an attack has a the ability to log into servers, that's obviously a bit of a problem. Yeah. Whereas if it was just like, I would, I would hope that regular users in the government just can't log into domain controllers. Not domain controllers, but other workstations. Probably. They could log into whatever workstation yeah. they want, so then and then you, you can get yeah. cash credentials and all that. Yeah. So, yeah. so it, 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 you go from there, essentially. And there's not really, I mean, in a Windows domain, there's not many ways to protect against that. But basically, watch your network. If one of your clients logs into another client, you should know about it, especially if they're using, you know, exploits or something to do so. Yeah, especially if they're dumping some possibly 18 million records. It's a lot of data moving. But that so, essentially also requires logging and alerting on the audit logs of every machine in your network which is a, which is really hard to do yeah i mean any one of these many things we've discussed could have helped them or saved them you know it's it's a chain the, any attack is a chain and you have to break the chain if you're gonna keep yourself from getting attacked so whether it's the firewall that saves you or whether it's the user permissions or you know the fact that all the call logs are monitored and someone goes through them and notices when you gave away your credentials it you know you got to something Yeah, I feel like saved is the wrong word in this sense, because anyone who's trying to have this goal of getting this information, it's not like, oh, they have a firewall. I'm not going to be able to get through now. But there's maybe not, at least, if not saved, then alerted them sooner. Because, I mean, four records, four million records don't walk out overnight. I mean, it's five months for each. Even if you look at the case of Target, they had basically everything they needed to know about that as it was happening. And they just still didn't catch it. Yeah. Well, okay, so overall, what what is it that we can do as an industry to persuade the government or businesses or Target or Home Depot, whoever, to adopt a risk-based mentality as opposed to just a compliance checkbox? Well, is there anything? Both. 
I know you. Need you I know you need both, but it's it's so it's it's so much more focused on the compliance rather than the overall. I mean, I think one of the best arguments is walk up to them and say, "Hey, you don't want to be like OPM, do you?" I mean, <laughs> it's a you know it's a and they'll reactive. go, "Who's OPM? What's OPM?" Well, you can <laughs> say, "Oh, well, <laughs> just go online and Google OPM breach, and you don't want to be that agency." The I problem mean, I think you see with compliance is that compliance has the legal like you have to do this to be compliant. Like, if you're not PCI compliant, you can't process credit cards. And same for SOX compliance and all those other, you know, acronyms that people or organizations have to follow. Well, as we've seen, some of those companies were initially PCI compliant, but not after a data breach. It shows that they uh, they weren't. But it's not like PCI took away Target's ability to process credit cards. And that'd be a so pretty good incentive to uh, uh, make sure that your security is... So basically, we're having these policies, compliant. we're not enforcing them. Pretty, and we pretty never much. have. Let, let's just say tomorrow that, you know, Walmart gets breached. PCI isn't going to be like, hey, Walmart, you're never going to be able to process no, a credit card No, because that would take away year. millions of... But, like, let's just say if, you know, Corey's restaurant got breached. Them. They can sue So, them. like, if Corey's restaurant got breached, they might take away your ability to process credit cards because yeah. you're not Walmart. Yeah. Too big to fail. Yeah, yeah because... But, uh, I mean, you can, you can sue. I mean, there are lawsuits. There's a lawsuit against Target happening right now. There's a class action lawsuit, you know? Yeah, so I the mean, lawyers are going to get billions of dollars, and everyone who shopped at Target will get, you know, a coupon for free, five free for 5% laundry. off their next dollar purchase. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> free credit checks. Free credit monitoring for life. I have at least five lifetimes of free credit <laughs> monitoring at this point that I stole from other people. It's all. <laughs> but no, I think that when, you, when you're looking at convincing someone, you can use examples, you can use um, statistics, you can use graphs of maps of people getting attacked from china and all kinds of crazy like scary things but really it has to be i see what tom's saying like they have to follow it and they should enforce that there should be some repercussions for not following it harsh consequences the harsh consequences in this case right now are just fines and for a lot of these companies like target and and home depot and if, if it was walmart that is at a point for them an acceptable risk to take because they can just pay off the fine instead of paying off the customers. Like, really, what's what's a $10 million fine to a company the size of Walmart? 20 minutes. It's like, that. that's like... That's 20 minutes of revenue. Not (laughs) not even, I don't think. It's the whole risk-reward sort of thing. Well, I think that there is an argument to be made at least at some point down the chain, you get to a point where your brand reputation is damaged. And I think that that does end up mattering with a private company, especially like Target's image is forever marred. When I look at a credit card reader at Target, I think of one thing and one thing only. I don't want to swipe my card there, but I'm going to anyway because I'm an idiot. I'll tell you, the last time <laughs> I was at Home Depot, I did use the pi- the chip as opposed did to the swipe. Did they actually work? I can never it, get it, it to did work. work, yeah. I can never get mine to work. I always try to use it, but it never works. But then again, not every person <laughs> thinks like that, though. No, they, but they that's hear true. about it, and then once it, you know, once it leaves mainstream media, it's kind of gone out of the world. I think a lot of people were incensed at the very least to say, "Oh, what? now I have to change my credit card because Target. Oh, this is so annoying. I have to type it in on all these other websites." Blah blah. blah. Like that—that that is annoying. And I think, I mean, Target was bad, but when it comes to OPM, that's way worse. Oh yeah, it's like. Okay, well, like there th- goes... That's our government. Those yeah, are their... it's our whole... It's people's entire lives, and that matters to them, you know? I and I think that does matter at some point is your brand reputation, your integrity. And plus, people are supposed to trust the government, right? Well, now, I don't think right now anyone trusts the government. So. Not, not with their sensitive data, at least. Yeah. But with what happened not too long ago, and my brother was actually affected by this, too, the uh, Aetna Healthcare 
breach that compromised some 11 million records or something like that. Similarly came from China, uh, from the group Deep Panda. They always claim that, though. They always, yeah, they always, oh, it had some something to do with the Chinese military. It was an advanced persistent threat. Yeah. yeah, Everyone's everyone's going after uh, APTs today. They're like, that is the in and the now. Well, it's the best excuse you can come up with. They're just really good. We don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's a terrible excuse. But it's something that is commonplace in our, well, in our world today. When... When was the last time that you did not hear about a threat happening to a company in like a month? I mean, it, it happens almost every few weeks. Well, we are pretty biased here at Hurricane Labs, considering all we do is look at um, security. So, <laughs> sure. Some people don't even know what information security is. So, oh, you mean like a lock on my filing cabinet? <laughs> That's good enough. Realistically, also, do we really want everyone to just be able to? Think of, have to think about, oh, am I shopping at a PCI compliance store right now with my uh, no. chip and pin enabled credit card? It's like... No, and if they did, we wouldn't have as much of a job as we do. <laughs> but Because security's hard and it's not getting any easier and no. it shouldn't be left to the end users to secure themselves. That's no, unfair. but they should be aware, though. Right, to I, be educated. It only yeah, helps absolutely. so much. I mean, people... If you, it's kind of like if you tell people, "Hey, don't swipe your card at Target," they won't listen. They're gonna do it anyway. It's like any system that's relying on a person to secure it is essentially destined to failure in some way. Probably because people make mistakes. Like giving out their password on the street for uh, who's that? Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah, I don't know. I'd do it. There is a video. But I'd give a fake password. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, how do you actually verify that? Oh, they actually logged in. Oh, okay. No, I'm just kidding. Never mind. I'm just then. joking. That would be ridiculous. What's that <laughs> one? Because I haven't heard. I haven't heard. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel went on the streets and uh, would ask people for their passwords, and initially people were against it, and then they started asking questions like, "Oh, well, well what would you consider to be a good password? You know, would it be like um, your pet's name or something like that?" And like, "Oh, yeah, yeah. What's my my pet's name? And maybe the year I graduated college. Oh, what's your pet's name?" They give out their pet's name. And then it's like they don't think. And education, you're right, it's important and it, it only goes so far. But this OPM breach may have been somewhat at least stifled by someone not giving out their password. Like you're saying, just war-dialing war numbers and seeing who gives it out. Yep. Or, you know, two-factor. Two-factor will save us all. It's like the uh, <laughs> salvation of me- of the many. That's the catch-all. That it I at get. least makes it harder. It does. Yeah, it and say not it that much harder everything. for users. It doesn't it doesn't make it that much harder on users. And assuming, you get a lot of benefit for not a lot of struggle. Yeah, yeah. Assuming it's actually a two-factor solution that, that works. doesn't, like, you know, prompt someone to just accept that they're logging in somewhere. It's actually a two-factor where they have to enter a token or do something, you know. Yeah, real two-factor. Yeah. Not just fake two-factor. It's like the little lock. We have two-factor. Yeah. We'll email you when someone hacked you. Ah, oh, too late. <laughs> you have just been hacked. Thank you, Google. Oh. <laughs> I'm using uh, I'm using two factor because of Tom right now. Care to share? That should not be the reason you're using two factor. <laughs> no, that's not the only reason. No, it, I, it uh, is required. It is. <laughs> it is required by company policy. You know, I I, I, I use two factor. Yeah, here, but prompted me to get a UB key because of that kid. Yeah. So anyone at Hurricane who uh, leaves their computer unlocked, regardless of the situation or location, is subject to torture. It doesn't matter if it's in a locked data center that only have a, like three people in it you know they could all be foes that's so, true uh, never Nick, trust nico might have learned that the uh hard way almost, almost almost the hard way wireless was disabled thankfully and it's it's easy enough to connect to wireless 
you say that, but you guys were thwarted three times because you kept reaching over me. <laughs> that was after you were aware of it. This is in regards to a very specific event. So don't trust anybody. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So anyway, let's move on to talking a little bit briefly about the NSA shenanigans that have been going on. So the NSA has reverse engineered a popular consumer antivirus software in order to track users. I know Nico did a little research. Do you want to say anything about um, what's going on? Just from the article that I was reading, they uh, there were warrants that were issued to... Kaspersky's software back in 2008, uh, and they were just revealed recently on WikiLeaks. And it's more data is coming out about it, saying that there's leaky data from their uh, updates. Um, you know, when you have Kaspersky, you have to purchase a, a subscription, so you you have a unique ID. And how are you going to verify that you purchased that? But contacting a server, and so. Through web requests, when uh, updates to virus databases go out to their customers, they were capturing uh, user IDs. You know, those user IDs were not, didn't say like Tom Kopchick. That, you know, wasn't like that. It was just a random string of numbers and letters. But with enough data, you can figure out who's where and find out how. So why they need a warrant? They issued... They they warranted to get the UUIDs that they were already sniffing for? (laughs) Pretty much. Well, I mean... To me, this sounds incredibly boring and underwhelming. Like, duh, the NSA hacked. The NSA has tried to reverse engineer any software that is used by more than any number of people. I mean, they've they've also tried to reverse engineer SSL, TLS, XAMPP, uh, probably Elliptic Curve. They have RSA 1024 broken. They have, let's see, iPhones iOS, Cisco, uh, Windows, pretty much any software that is used by human beings. They've tried to reverse engineer it, and so I—I I mean, I don't know why that's really surprising to people. It of sounds course, cool. Of course, they'd target an antivirus because antivirus runs as a privileged user usually, or it runs with some level of access. So of course, it's an easy target. So I mean, of course they did. That's their job. They're just doing their job. Even if their job's illegal, they're still doing it. It's not illegal. It's just well, uh, some of the things the NSA did illegal things. They weren't following. This was not a no, no, approved. not not in regards to this specifically, but in general, the NSA has done things that are illegal, and it was okay because that's what they were doing. It was for national security or something, so it's okay. But does anyone think Google is worse than the NSA? Google wants to sell me ads, and the NSA wants to listen to everyone I ever talk to. Not for no for just in case I'm a terrorist. They do essentially do the same thing, though. Yeah. That's true. Well, not really, because Google doesn't sit on zero days and use them to exploit people. Google also doesn't intercept uh, hardware and put a backdoor in it. And <laughs> they, they, they just sell hardware Well, with backdoors in it's it. It's open source. <laughs> it's an open source true. backdoor. You can just go look at backdoor.java or whatever it is and see what they're collecting. It's not the end of the world. <laughs> the difference between the NSA and Google is simply that the NSA's intent is to find criminals and Google's intent is to find people who want to buy stuff. So, I mean, <laughs> I think the NSA is also, they put they put our entire nation's security at risk by saying, okay, we'll just find all these zero days and then just wait and just sit here and exploit them whenever we need them. But we will not publicly release them because we want to use them more. So, whereas Google's like, hey, this isn't good. Poodle, let's uh, let's release Poodle. You know, I mean, that was Google. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I think that the intent 
is like if you look at their actions, they're actually pretty similar, which is kind of weird, which is yeah. what the article's about. But if you look at their their intent and their general, you know, regards for people's security, I think. And also, the Google Google has uh, thwarted the NSA. Google was one of the first websites to roll out automatic HTTPS and that kind of stuff. As far as big websites are concerned, so Google cares about protecting its users. Also, isn't their motto like? do no evil or something isn't that like sergey brin's like first like number one tenant is do no evil think something i'm pretty like sure that. that google's like google has some corporate motto in regards to do no evil but i think the mm. nsa's motto is actually do evil no i think it's no we it's listen not. we listen yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do evil to terrorists that's what it would be just to clarify so the gchq applied for a renewal warrant to the uk government and what that means is that they wanted to renew their program to continue cracking kaspersky's software well not just theirs but any antivirus software like you said runs as a privileged user so that's a way in i'm surprised they even got a warrant i figured they just do it without even any approval or just have the what is it the circuit secret ring you know the secret court that's just like oh yeah sure you can have a warrant for anything you want sure it's not hard to get a warrant if you need one (laughs) basically yeah i i mean it's kind of one of those cases of it's like okay yeah of course they cracked antivirus software i'm sure that maybe the gchq just applied for that warrant to divert the attention somewhere else so they're going to be cracking something else that is unrelated i mean i would just assume that if it hides people's data from someone they're they're going to be cracking it or if they can use it to gain access to mm-hmm. someone's machine, they're gonna they're gonna be cracking it. So I guess the real question is now, who's worse, Google or the NSA? Well, Google. I don't think Google is applying for any warrants to be able to crack software. No, because they don't. Oh, to crack it. Oh, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean. So you think Google's worth, Kelsey? <laughs> Not really. Do you do you think that like realistically? I don't know if if you're doing like software analysis. Do you really need a warrant for that? Well, I'm sure it was some... They wouldn't apply for a warrant unless there was a reason. Maybe it was to intercept the data from Kaspersky's server or something. Yeah, well, it didn't have to do a whole lot of work. Just, if you're just doing security research on any sort of software... You don't need a warrant for that. You don't need a warrant, yeah. No. You just... But they were probably like, well, this is too hard. We'll just get it from their server where it's all decrypted or something. So they applied for a warrant. And, and of course, Kaspersky can't say anything. Yeah, now that, that's more on the side of like... And that, that goes That's with actually, destroying you know, a company's reputation. Accessing a protected computer, yeah. you are breaking the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act in that Yeah, case. so you need a warrant. Does that actually apply, though, in the U.K.? I don't think so. I don't, uh, U.S. law shouldn't apply in the U.K., I don't think, unless they have a, like, some the corresponding agreement. There might be UK some kind law. of U.K. law that says you can't intercept people's data without a warrant or something, and that's what they were applying for. But I'm sure that while while GCHQ was uh, applying for a warrant, the NSA had already cracked it and was just sitting there listening to people for like three years <laughs> without a warrant or with a totally legit warrant that they got from, you know, Ted's warrant shack down the street where it's secret and anyone that they render a warrant onto is bound by law not to disclose it and that kind of stuff. You know, like uh, TrueCrypt or Havabit or... Have they actually cracked TrueCrypt? I mean, I, I know that the development of the project has stopped, but from what I last heard, there was not compromised. Well, I don't know. Go work for the NSA and let us know. Is it compromised? I don't know, but I can tell you this: if I was the, if I was the creator slash developer of a cryptographic product 
and I got subpoenaed by the NSA or whatever, I would definitely shut down because that's your only option. You can't say, oh, I got subpoenaed by the NSA or compromised, get out now. All you can say is we're shutting down the project. We can't say why, it's just happening. Because it's required by law that you don't disclose that you were you know, compromised by the NSA or whatever. But I mean, is it compromised? Who knows? But all I can say is if I was the developer slash creator of a project, I wouldn't just shut it down for no reason. I mean, I wouldn't just be like, well, this product works and it's secure, but I'll just shut it down because, you know, without giving a reason. Mm -hmm. And it's not like they said, you know, I'm just sick right now and I can't work on this project anymore. You know, it, it was just like, we're closing up shop. We recommend you use something else. Good luck. Yep. So to me, that essentially is their only way of saying we're compromised. Get out while you still can, basically. But who knows? I think um, some somebody else picked the project up eventually, though. So. Well, I'm sure. It's just like anything else. Of course, someone's like, well, I still found the source code, so I can keep going. But, I mean, it's probably compromised. I would assume it's compromised because there's no reason to shut down a project for no without cause. Yeah. It would make no sense. Did any of you guys watch Google's, the Google I.O. event, where they talked about that uh, pretty much what Chrome had happened to it, where the microphone was being activated on its own without the user's knowledge? You can have that activated, and their example was, what is his name if you're listening to, like, Skrillex or something like that? Makes sense. I mean, if you think about it, newer phones actually have a chip that is always listening for, okay, Google Now, or whatever it is, to turn on, so... Is it a specific piece of hardware now it's no longer just software based i think they moved it to a specific soc because it helps optimize for you know whatever i don't know i mean who who knows but basically the idea is there's um, they're always listening to the microphone for your convenience but the question is okay so we assume that google's always listening to us and what do they use it for well to sell us more products maybe to to give us better search results whatever i don't see google like subpoenaing me and saying you're a terrorist because you googled how to make a bomb like i don't see i don't think google's gonna do that i I could see the nsa doing that Mm -hmm. or saying oh i don't think google's gonna be the one at tsa that says yeah you've been selected for a random screening that's not gonna be google like (laughs) what are they gonna do with it they're not gonna be like you know you go to search something they're like wait yeah you're on the no search list uh you can't (laughs) search like what are they you know what i mean it's google they they want to use your information to help you, or not necessarily maybe to help you, but to help you in the way that they see as helping. Now, when Google's helping turns into hurting, then that's when Google becomes as bad as the NSA. But right now, at least, I think that their helping is actually helping. And it is pretty awesome when you're like, okay, Google, now how tall is Hugh Jackman? And it's like, oh, it's six foot two. You're like, oh, that's so cool. But if you're like, okay, Google, now how do, how do you, sorry, you're on the no-fly list. You can't ask any questions anymore. Yeah, I also don't think that, you know, if you got search for how to make a bomb that you're going to get a subpoena, you're just going to get somebody that shows up at your house. Oh, yeah, there you go. Whatever. I mean, who knows? The point is Google's not going to show up at your house and take all your computers and then just civil forfeiture or whatever. Like, Google's not going to do that. The NSA will do that or could. This property has been foreclosed by Google. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Google heard you say something bad. Well, if everyone uses Adblock, (laughs) they're going to have to go with another source of revenue. (laughs) That's right, foreclosures. <laughs> I want to know how you apply to be a part of the NSA. Do they have a marketing? <laughs> yeah, they do. They actually do. No, they go to colleges they and they pick up young kids. Oh. They hire The NSA hires more mathematicians than almost any co- company in the United States. Yeah, I think, Nico, you've actually been at job fairs with the NSA, so. Yeah, they, Whoa. uh. He's compromised. we got to get him out. Yeah. Shoot. Can no longer work here. <laughs> 
No, they generally are looking for full-time employees. I don't think that they offer co-op positions. Um, what, you don't want to be an NSA intern? And the, uh, we, we saw how well the uh, <laughs> NTSB internship worked out for that one. Way <laughs> <Pretty> too low. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're not marketing for the NSA right now, so stop. <laughs> hey, I didn't have to go through a six- to eight-month background check to work here. So Wait, what? You didn't? Oh, already an improvement. I did. Oh, you're working on it. Shh, don't tell anybody You don't that. know it's a background oh. check. <laughs> You guys have like this the all secret test. secret hurricane police <laughs> Wait, questioning all probably, my known contacts. Let's, Tom, let's we should we should we're gonna cut this out. Yeah, we can't let people know about our secret background. Job. No, we can't. <laughs> we can't. Yeah, what do you think the pen testers are doing all day? Playing video games. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. You don't understand. It's all just an illusion, Kelsey. Oh, but are we really here? Pri- you're not privy to any. Where of am this. I? All right. Anyway, I wanted to talk a little bit about besides Pittsburgh and besides Cleveland. Tom and I had the privilege of going, and Tom was, he presented at B-Sides Pittsburgh and Cleveland, and then all of us were at the Cleveland one. Um, but Chris Nickerson, I want to give a shout-out to him. He's a CISSP who has done a ton in the InfoSec He's world. He's the guy from Tiger Team. Are you kidding me? That's his most biggest claim to fame. He was on an awesome TV show. Yeah, his TV show. He's That's a rock it. star. That's all that matters. Yeah. I have yet to watch it. What? I know. I have to watch it, too. So You we'll... guys suck. Hey, we can have a movie night. <laughs> movie night tonight. It's not a movie. It's a TV show. Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> when you're a rock star, it doesn't matter. So, anyway, I mean, he's led quite a dynamic life. But I just have to give kudos to him because he really laid everything out in a very real way and gave a lot of great messages to you know, the InfoSec community, and I just kind of wanted to reiterate one, is that it's too prevalent in our industry that there's too much ego, there's too much judgment, there's too much, the end user is stupid, you know, and basically what he was saying is that looking down on those who don't know all things InfoSec, and nobody knows all things InfoSec, is, it's not a good thing to do. I mean, even for me, I'm I'm still learning, and it's intimidating when people are like, oh, you're stupid, Mm. but you know, he's saying what he was saying was that there's people out there who are doing things that we're not doing. They know things that we don't know. And, you know, so learn from them and then give back and teach them something that they don't know. Um, and he was really pushing the point that we are educators. And so that's what, you know, that's what we should be doing. That's what's helping us improve together. That's what's helping people who are not in the IT security inf- industry improve. So I, I liked that. And I don't know if any of you had any commentary from either of those conferences. I My they were favorite awesome. thing that he said was if, if someone, if you ask someone for help and they turn you down, then they're dead in this industry and you should just let them go out to port, basically. I like that, too. <laughs> yeah, to that pasture. was excellent. Out yeah. to pasture, there you go. Yeah, that's what he said. So, I mean, I think that's a really good mentality to have. It's not It's not a snub against you. They're just dead on the inside. So. Right. Yeah, and really, no one's going to know everything in this industry, and no. every mm-hmm. day that you're working in this industry, you're learning something new. Or you're doing it wrong. Yeah. yeah. As we learned. Yeah. So, so I thought that was awesome. I guess just a final note of you know speaking on infosec mentality there was an article that i was reading called why it's worth divorcing information security from it and i just thought that was kind of an interest an interesting way to put it and it's very true because information security is not only it anymore i mean of course we all know that but it's got to be prevalent throughout pretty much every part of a business or organization at this point it's also now separate departments at universities it, it, it is separated uh, or not? Depending on where you go. Universities have separated the IT and information security world 
So Nico's university has separated. (laughs) (laughs) Confirmed one university has. It's basically a national trend at this point. (laughs) (laughs) If they they haven't already, it's recommended because information security is very cool. (laughs) If you're a curriculum writer for college, just talk to Nico. (laughs) Yep. I will forward you on to our department. Anyway, wrapping this up, why I did just we, why did we let him speak on this again? <laughs> <laughs> it was a lottery, I think, right? Didn't you just pull a name from a hat? Did he lose the lottery? <laughs> <laughs> he was the only one that won or lost, uh, I guess. I guess. It, it depends I don't know. on how you look at it. Anyway, just two announcements and then we're good to go. Um, Ian has a blog screencast tutorial coming up. And this is another one that he's created to help eliminate confusion in the user experience. So with this one, he is showing how to create a dynamic custom modal implementation in Splunk. Basically, this helps with users being able to see, to visually see defined panels within the dashboard and not have them hidden because with multiple pivots that can happen across multiple links, the visualization, I guess, can become confusing. I don't know. I'm not a Splunk expert. I don't look at these, but... That sounds fancy. So What it really means is it's cool and you should watch it. Yeah, so it's visually appealing and it's awesome. And lastly, the Converge conference is coming up in Detroit, Michigan on July 16th and 17th. And uh, word on the street is there might be a live podcast with Hurricane Labs. So keep an eye out. And uh, that's it. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 Bye.